I want to invite you right up front to grab your Bibles and go ahead and jump to the book of Titus, the book of Titus. And if you're not sure where the book of Titus is, you can find it in your table of contents at the front, or you can start in the very back and head about 11 books toward your left, and you will run into Titus. If you didn't bring your Bible with you today or you don't have a Bible, all you need to do is throw up your hand, and one of our ushers would be more than glad to bring you a Bible. These Bibles are yours to keep and to have. We want to provide you with the Bible because we believe in the value and the importance of having the Word of God in everyone's hands. I'm excited, and I hope you are, about this series, Timeless Truths. We're going to be in this series throughout the remainder of the summer. There's an old adage that says that facts, uh, facts change, but truth never does. And that's what we want to focus on, is that the facts in our world are constantly changing. They're ebbing and they're flowing, and we live in a society where, really, truth has become relative in a lot of respects. The one thing that doesn't change is God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and therefore, his word never changes. It's infallible. We believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, that it was God-breathed, God-inspired through the Holy Spirit, perfect and free from flaw. And there are some timeless truths that we are going to investigate now for the next couple of months together as we head through the rest of the summer in our Timeless Truth series through the book of Titus. What I want to spend today with, uh, or spend our time with today, is setting up where we're going to be for the next eight, nine, ten weeks together. As we we discover together uh, these Timeless Truths, I want to let us know a little bit about the book of Titus, or the letter, and what it is. So if you have your pen or pencil in hand, this is going to be a great time to start taking some notes, jot down, and you'll want to keep these notes and carry these with you throughout the remainder of this series as context and culture. If you've been a part of CBC for any length of time, you've heard me say, guaranteed, that I believe in context and culture. Because the more we understand context and culture, the better we are able to apply the word of God to our lives. It's imperative that we get that. So, Titus, what is it? Who is it? What's it about? Why is it there? Well, Titus is a letter that, uh, the, the, the book of Titus is actually a letter that was penned by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, after his first imprisonment in Rome, but before his second imprisonment in Rome, is traveling on his missionary journeys. He'll go on several significant missionary journeys, and this is right in the middle of his missionary journeys. Paul is in a a, a place called Macedonia, and he writes to an individual in Titus who is a young pastor. Titus is a young pastor on the island of Crete, and we'll talk about that here in just a moment. I'll give you more context about Crete. But Paul is writing to an individual that he knows well that he has mentored, that he has invested in, that he has seen gifts and talents and the call of the Lord and his anointing on Titus. He has seen Titus's character, his integrity, and he has partnered with Titus through various different ministries, including to the church in Corinth, where Titus was the one who had to help deliver the news in 1 Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthian church, which was a big reprimand and a huge correction. Not only that, but because of how Titus managed the church and was able to disseminate the information in a way that honored God and honored others above himself while keeping to the truth of what God was wanting the people to know, he was also given the responsibility to go back to Corinth with the second letter and continue to encourage and instruct and inspire and and, and to admonish the church in Corinth. There's not much that we hear about Titus in Acts. It's, It's really only about one place. Where we learn about Titus is in Galatians 
and in 1 Corinthians. We can see a lot about Titus, the relationship that Paul has with Titus, the significance of their relationship. What's also important to know is that this letter is written between Paul's first two letters to Timothy. Between 1 and 2 Timothy, Paul writes this letter to Titus. And there are some parallels that we need to draw there. As we grow in the whole counsel of God's word, we'll come to understand all the more these letters and the significance of the, of the, the letters in scripture and the, the first letter to Timothy and the second letter to Timothy. There is a lot of similarities between first and second Timothy and Titus. It is a letter that is given to a young pastor who is responsible. He's been given a charge to lead not just a church, but multiple churches that are beginning to pop up throughout Crete. And so we're going to learn in Titus about elders, about leadership, about biblical ministry, about what the principles are that we need to employ to honor God and to serve others. It is an instruction as an as a, as a elder or a senior statesman in ministry to a younger man who is learning about ministry and applying what he's learning as he goes. And so Paul writes this letter in between First and Second Timothy to Titus, and Timothy and Titus bear a lot of resemblance to one another. Paul writes this letter uh, as, as a way of, of not only instruction, but encouragement as well. And you and I know that we need to be encouraged, especially when we're dealing with tough circumstances and situations. And that's exactly what Titus was entering into. On the island of Crete, this was a, a part of the Roman culture. This was a group that was all about idolatry. This was a group that had little g gods or deities that they worshiped. But there's something significant about Crete that I want us to look at because it will, it will bear a lot of significance as we go through this letter about why God was addressing this people. Maybe you've heard the statement, don't be a Cretan, or that guy's a little Cretan. It actually is derived from Crete, from this time. When you think about the context and culture, Crete had a national identity for being a bunch of liars. They would, in, they would uh, embellish they would fabricate, they would out and out lie about things that, that they felt would please others or would, 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 would build them up. The other thing about Crete is that they were full of false teachings, false teachers, and false doctrine. There were lies being spread throughout. And so if you were called a Cretan, or if you were being like a Cretan, then you, what you, and essentially what you were saying is, don't be one of those liars, one of those embellishers, one of those, uh, those individuals who are gross and detestable. And so that is the context now, the national identity for a whole culture and a whole community that, that Titus has accepted the responsibility, the commission, and the anointing to go and lead these churches. The other thing that is significant about this letter is that as Titus is trying to establish these churches in Crete, they are a group of individuals who recognize their gross need for God as their, uh, as their Savior, Jesus as their Savior, and God as their King, but they want to keep one foot into their culture and the other foot into the church. And so Titus has to address very clearly this dichotomy of wanting to be in the world and not of the world and wanting to be a part of this culture but, but being separate or distant, which we learned about from Peter's letters to the churches spread out throughout Asia Minor, that we are temporary residents and aliens, foreigners. And so you're going to hear a lot of stress put on and emphasis put on grace and works. This was a culture that prided themselves not only on, on, on what they wanted people to see, but that they felt they could somehow work their way into eternity. They could work themselves into being good enough. And what you're going to see throughout this letter, kind of really the main purpose of this letter, is the significance of grace 
and works, or grace before works. And so we're going to talk about this today, but there's just some context now. This letter was written between A.D. 62 and A.D. 64. And so again, it's a big part of the Roman Empire. It's a big part of that culture. But that is where we're going to start today. And as we do, I want to open in prayer, and we're going to jump right into first, uh, to Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. We're going to spend uh, the next four hours in four verses. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this great group of people that we get to do life and ministry with. And I pray, I pray now that as we dive into your truth, into your scripture, that you, Lord, would be glorified. Redeem this time, use it for your good purposes, educate us, equip us, instruct us, speak to our hearts, and help us not to receive just information as information, but to take your anointed instruction, to take your active living truth, apply it to our lives, and to glorify your name, Jesus. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, with your Bibles in hand, Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to stop along the way as we have become accustomed to here, and we're going to break down systematically what we're hearing, what we're seeing, and why it matters. So here we go. This letter is from Paul. Stop. We can't get five words in without understanding what's about to take place. This is a formal greeting, a formal introduction that we see throughout Scripture. Paul is establishing at least five things here. Number one, he's establishing who he is. Number two, we're going to see in just a moment that he's establishing his credentials. What gives him the right, the authority on which he's writing? Number three, he's going to establish his audience or his recipient. And number four, he's going to establish the main reason for the letter, what he's writing for. And finally, he's going to uh, begin with a blessing. He's going to begin and end. Bookends are going to begin and end with the blessing of God. So it's a very formal introduction. And that's important, too, because when people say, how do they know what books were included in the Bible and what weren't? Well, we have what we call the canonical gospels, but we also have what is known as the canon, which is a ruler, a golden ruler, that everything was measured against. And so there are several attributes of, of, of Scripture when it's applied to, to, to whether or not it made the Bible. Apostolic attribution, whether it, it's uh, beneficial to the church, I mean, all kinds of things. And part of what they did is they looked at the literary content of each letter to determine who it came from, the authority, and, what, and to see the similarities through the whole thing. And so Paul almost always introduces himself in this formal fashion with the, these five things. That's important to, to know. So as you're reading scripture, you can look at it and say, oh, I recognize that. Those are the five formal elements of, of, of an introduction. Paul says, this letter is from Paul. And then he gives two Two things that are his credentials. One is a position and one is his purpose. He says, I am a slave of God. A slave of God. In some translations, it reads bond servant. To be a slave or a bond servant, in the original language, is the word doulos. Doulos literally is, 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 it can be understood as a slave by choice. And here's what you need to know. Back in... Paul's culture, time and context now, when somebody had a debt to a debtor that they were unable to repay, we did not have the means then to apply for bankruptcy, file for bankruptcy, chapter 11, and, and allow our debts to be wiped clean and start over with a fresh slate. Instead, what a debtor would do is he would go to a debtee and he would give an opportunity then for this individual to repay the debt through being a slave. And that individual would sign on then 
for six years of labor, whether it was in the house or it was at the fields or whatever it was that they were doing, he would be responsible then for a period of six years to repay his debt by serving as a servant or a slave in the household of what then becomes his master. That would then cancel out the debt on the seventh year. We see all the way back in Deuteronomy, you can see this in Deuteronomy throughout, but specifically in Deuteronomy 15, that the seventh year, the debt was canceled. And what this was was a precursor. This was God in his infinite wisdom preparing the people to understand how our debts are forgiven. That it doesn't matter how much we work, without the freedom of God, or the, 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 the debts being canceled and the freedom we experience in God, that it amounts to nothing. And so on the seventh year, debts would be canceled. But there were circumstances and instances where a slave would have been treated so well and they would have been establishing themselves in the household of their master, maybe would have even begun a family in the household of their master, that they would then, at the end of the sixth year, going into the seventh year where their, they were, they were, their debt was canceled, they would go to the head of the household, they would go to the master, and they would ask permission. They would, in essence, want a blessing to stay on as what we now know as a bond servant or an indentured servant. This was an individual who would go to the master and say, I have been treated so well in your household. You have cared for me like a son, like one of your own. Would you please keep me on? I will stay as your slave, as a bond servant, if you would have me. So this was a free will choice about who they were declaring to be their master and who they were serving and what their declaration to serve was. What that master would do then is they would go find the closest uh, piece of wood in the house. Uh, the, and a lot of times it was the door frame. Would be, most of these houses were built out of, out of concrete. Well, not concrete as we know it, but a hard surface. And so they would go then and find the door frame. And they would take their ear and put it against the doorpost with an owl. An owl. A-W-O-W-L. A-W-L. They would take an owl and they would put it along the earlobe and they would take a hammer and would pierce the ear with this owl and they would then put an earring in the ear which symbolized two things. It was significant because it symbolized, number one, your choice to be a bond servant and number two, like a brand, it declared who you were serving. So those are two significant things to know. What Paul says then in, 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 in parallel, when he says, I am a slave, I am a bond servant, he is saying, in essence, I have chosen, I went to God, and I, I declared that he would be my master, and that I would willingly serve him, though I was free to make other choices. I was free to live my life the way I wanted to live my life, where I wanted to live my life, and how I wanted to live my life. I chose to make God my master and to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is significant when we think about free will. This is significant when we think about our right and our human responsibility, that God chooses us. And we're going to see that here in just a moment. The term there, ectolos, is what we also see in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. We're going to read about it in just a second. But that word then denotes that God chooses us. He would love for us to come to him and, and, and us to declare him as our master and then to, to wear as a part of our, our lifestyle, not an all with a, a door frame and an earring, but with the way we live our lives, whom we belong to and how we have chosen to live our lives as a servant. Paul identifies right away that that is his choice. He says, this is my position. I am a slave of God by choice. He is who I serve. He is who I belong to. But he doesn't stop there, church. No, no, no. He says, I am a slave of God and 
I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, an apostle in the original language literally means a mouthpiece or a spokesperson. He was an ambassador for Jesus Christ, appointed with the responsibility to bear and share the good news, bearing the good news by how you live your life and sharing the good news with your words. What Paul then does is he essentially says, this is my position as a slave or a bondservant, but it isn't my purpose. My purpose is to be an ambassador, which leads me to my first thought today. And the first thing I want to share with you is simply this. Understanding our position leads us to adopting our purpose. Understanding our position leads us to adopting our purpose. If we don't have a clear understanding of our position, of who we are and whose we are, then we can never truly adopt our position without, or our purpose without resentment. When we know who we are because of whose we are, the purpose that we have in life becomes more clear for us all the more that we get to know God. Why we're here, what we're here to do, what our purpose is. And when I said that, 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 that an, uh, an apostle was responsible for bearing the name of Christ with how they lived their life and declaring who, uh, what, 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 what the gospel was through their words, here's what is significant about that. When I talk about bearing, you, it's, a, it's a direct relationship to bearing fruit. That we, as we are growing in Christ, if we had declared God our, our master, if we have said Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, and I'm choosing to serve him, it, 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 our lives will inherently bear fruit. It's a byproduct of a close relationship with Jesus Christ. That when we are grounded, when we are rooted, and when we are intentionally nurturing our relationship with Jesus Christ, the fruit in our lives will become natural byproducts then of a life lived to serve Jesus Christ. We have a responsibility not only to bear the name of Christ, but to share, to declare with our words. But it begins with how we live our lives. When we understand that as a, as a, as a purpose, it becomes a byproduct of our position. And so I want to ask you this question this morning. Paul comes up with a formal declaration, a formal introduction, and I mentioned the five things he does in his introduction. But what's imperative to understand is that the people knew who Paul was immediately. There was a, a direct relationship between Paul and Titus and the church because Paul had spent time with, with the individuals, loving them and growing them in the Lord. So they knew because of how Paul lived his life, who he was and what he was about. They knew his position and they knew his purpose. And not just because he wrote it down, but because of how he lived, because of the fruit. Which begs the question, do people know whose you are and who you are? In other words, do they know your position and do they know your purpose based on how you live your life? Or do you have to clear it up for them? Do you have to go back and qualify all your statements about who you are and what you're about? If that's the case, then church, I want to beg you to consider if you're really truly rooted and grounded in the Word of God, and if you're intentionally nurturing your relationship with Jesus Christ. Because again, the byproduct of a growing relationship with Jesus Christ is the fruit. And when you bear fruit, you won't have to pre-qualify anything. People will naturally see the, the byproduct of the relationship that you carry with Jesus Christ. So my question this morning is, with regards to your position and your purpose, do people know who you are as a child of Christ as a, as, a, as a child of God and a brother in, or a sister in Christ? Or do you have to explain it to him? It goes on from there. He talks about the apostle. He says, I have been sent. That word sent means to be appointed. To what? To proclaim. 
to declare, to share my faith to those God has chosen. That's that word that I want to look at here. And to teach them to know the truth that shows them how to live godly lives. The fact that they're chosen doesn't dismiss the fact that they still have an opportunity to choose if they'll live in that or not. Do you see that there? He says, for those that God chose, and I'm, I'm I'm declaring the truth, shows them how to live godly lives. We have to understand that, yes, God chooses us, but we have a responsibility to live in God's choosing of our lives. And Paul tells Titus again, remind him, remind him, yes, they are God's anointed. Yes, they are God's appointed. Yes, they are God's chosen. But that doesn't dismiss the responsibility that they have to live their calling on their lives. It would be as though I gave you the set of keys to a brand new Mercedes Benz. 2017. They're so creative now, you don't even have to drive it. You punch in the address, parallel parking. This is a godsend for many. You punch in the and you sit there. If I gave you the keys to a brand new Mercedes Benz, it doesn't mean you know how to drive it or that you're going to drive it. You could just hold on to those keys in your pocket all you want. You could even show it to people. But until you choose to get in it and operate what has been given to you as a gift, it's really useless. And this is the parallel here that, look, God chooses us. He's given us his gift, but we have a responsibility to live out the life that he's calling us to. That's what Paul says. Now, verse 2. This truth, remember, facts change, but truth never does. The truth is the truth of God. The truth of his grace, the truth of the peace that we'll experience in him, the truth of his salvation for us. This truth gives them what? It gives them confidence, not in the things of this world, we're going to talk about here in just a moment, but it gives them a confidence that they have eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the world began. I find it interesting that Paul stresses the fact that God does not lie. Remember now who he's talking to. He's talking to Cretans. He's talking to an entire culture that their national identity is that they are nothing but a bunch of liars and individuals who embellish for their own personal gain. They are known to lie. It's not a mystery to them. They recognize that this is who they've become. So it's important then that Paul stressed to them, look, 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 regardless of your national identity and how you've lived your life that you're familiar with, you've become accustomed with, even comfortable with lying, God never lies. There are some things in this world that God cannot do. And amongst theologians, people get really interesting when you say that. Well, there are things God isn't able to do. What do you mean? God is sovereign. God is great. God can do all things. He's omniscient. He's all-powerful. He, he's the author and perfecter of life, the beginning and end, the creator of all the... Yes, you're right. Who are you to say God can't do anything? I'm a student of the Word of God. Well, where do you, where do you find that God can't do anything? Well, right here. It says God cannot lie. He can't go back on his promises. And that's important because it means that we can trust God. That we can take God at his word. That we can believe God at face value. Which leads to my second thought is that, and that is this. Truth leads to confidence. Until we understand the truth of God and adopt it for ourselves, the best we can hope for is a false confidence based off of lies. Until we understand the word of God as the truth of God and adopt it for ourselves, the best we can hope for is a false confidence based off of lies. Our true confidence comes from the word of God. It comes from the instruction of God, the whole counsel of God and his promises, which he has yet to go back on. Our true confidence for eternal life comes from the authority of scripture, not chasing the lies of this world. 
So I, I need to ask the question, where does your confidence come from? Does your confidence come from the word of God and what God believes about you, what God declares about you, what God has created you for? Or does your confidence come in what others say about you and trying to please others? You see, that's why most people lie. There's really kind of two reasons. One is to avoid some consequence, and number two is to try to portray something about themselves that they're really not. And why would any of us try to portray something about ourselves that we're really not if it weren't to want to please others? We live in a Jones competing with the Jones culture. We see what our neighbors have, and we think we are entitled to that, or we think we need to keep up with the Joneses. And so we'll either go and do something drastically uh, absent-minded, or we will lie about who we are, what we've done, where we've been. Let me read this to you from Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. Paul says, obviously I'm not trying to win the approval of people. If I was, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. He says, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. Church, hear me say this. It is impossible to please God and to please people. I read several blogs during the week. I get these leadership blogs. I get these ministry principle blogs. And I got one this last week. It was seven warning signs that the pastor is making a wrong decision. Seven warning signs that the pastor is making a wrong decision. One of them was that you're making the decision on your own with the, without the counsel of your other team and, uh, and, and, and advisors. But one of the ones that stuck out to me the most was if everybody is happy with your decision, it's probably not the right decision. In other words, if you're working to please people, then you care more about what people think of you than what God thinks of you. And when that happens, you've dismissed the authority of Scripture, the promises of God's Word, to please man. And church, when you're pleasing man, you're living a lie. When you set yourself up to live in accordance with the culture at large, to please the people around you, you're living based on a false confidence, a false hope, and it's nothing more than a lie. Who are you living to please with how you live your life? Who are you living to please with your social media? Who are you living to please with the words that come from your mouth? Who are you living to please with how you spend your money? Who are you living to please with how you spend your time, with where you invest what God has given you? Verse three, and now, I would love for you to circle that. That is so important. And now, at just the right time, he has revealed his message, which, he, which we announce to everyone. That is the apostolic ministry, the announcing, the proclamation of the gospel. It is by the command of God our Savior. This is now his credentials. This is where he derives his authority. This is what gives him the opportunity and the responsibility. It's not on his own accord, not on his own strength, not on his own abilities, but on God alone, his Savior, that I have been entrusted. We are entrusted when we show that we can be responsible. We show that we can be responsible by the fruit in our lives. I have been entrusted with this work for him. And now, he says, and now, he transitions away from who he is, who he's writing to about the truth, and then he talks about what we are called to do with the truth, and he gives a timeline on it. 
Most people are curious when Jesus is going to come, his second, uh, his second coming, where, where he's going to come. You know, he, he, he rose from the dead, he ascended, and he's coming back, and he's going to draw all people unto himself, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess, and we're all looking forward to a time where there's no more gnashing, no more sorrow, no more weeping, no more distress, no more destruction, no more wars, no more sickness, no more famine. We are looking forward to the time where we will experience the best version of ourselves we've ever known or could even think of, the, the perfect, pure version of ourselves where we will stand before the throne of God and declare, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We are looking forward to a time where we will know his glory, where we will be in his presence. And church, we are called to want to do that. But instead of investigating and trying to figure out when that will come and wasting our time on what Jesus said, we have no authority to understand. He says, nobody knows the time except my father alone. What we do need to understand is that scripture is clear about what we do with our time while we are here. And what Paul says when he says, and now, lean in church, get this, he's saying, look, right where you're at, in this very moment, you have a responsibility. You have an obligation. You have a commitment as a Christian, and not only that, but you have an opportunity in this season, in this moment. He doesn't precursor, uh, give any precursors and say, if you're healthy enough, if you're young enough, if you're old enough, if you're financially sound enough, if you're Christian enough, if you've gone to church enough, if you're religious enough. He doesn't give any, any it's not predicated on anything. He says, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have adopted his truth and you are looking forward to eternal glory because of his promises, then in this very moment, you have a responsibility. None of us is exempt from that. Not one of you can leave here today without questioning, even for a moment, what your responsibility is. Straight from God's lips to your ears, he says, and now at just the right time, he has revealed his message. God has revealed this message, which we announce. Our responsibility is to proclaim the gospel, to announce the gospel first with bearing fruit and then with our words. And then he says, it is by the command of God, our Savior. We're not doing it on our own accord or our own strength. We are doing it on the authority and the power given to us by Jesus Christ and God, our Savior. That I have been entrusted with work for him, which is my third thought. The time is now. The time is now. What are you waiting for? Just like marriage, when I got married, I was told if you wait to have kids until you're financially ready, you'll never have kids. If you wait to have kids until you're intellectually ready, you'll never have kids. You'll think through it and you won't have kids. If you wait to have kids until you've got a big enough house or a big enough yard, or big, like they give all these examples. If you wait, in other words, if you wait to have kids until you think you're ready, you're never ready. I've had six of them. I'm still not ready. God continues to teach me every day through my children, and I consider it a blessing. God doesn't make mistakes or do anything by accident. He's constantly revealing himself to us in this moment for a reason, for his purposes. And church, we need to understand that we have a responsibility to recognize it and respond. An opportunity and obligation to share the good news of Jesus to a world desperately in need of our Savior, both with what we say and more importantly how we live. And my question is, do you live your life with a sense of urgency for all that God has called you to? Do you live your life with a sense of expectation and urgency for what God has called you to? And if not, church, why not? Is it because you don't understand it or you haven't understood it up until this point? There's been an absence of knowledge? Well, guess what? God has just answered that for you. You now have a clear understanding of who you are, whose you are, what you're called to as a follower of Christ. So what's keeping you from living life with a sense of urgency at the responsibility, the obligation, and the opportunity to declare his truth? Let's jump into verse four together. 
Paul says, I am writing to Titus, my true son in the faith that we share. There are times in ministry that it is incredibly lonely. There are leadership decisions that are made that are not popular at the culture around you, within the context even of the church. There are times in the life of the pastor, and contrary to popular belief, we work more than just Sundays, where we feel divided between our family and the church. And you know who usually misses out the most? It's not our family and it's not the church, it's God. I've known far too many pastors who have put God on the back shelf because they don't have enough time for their relationship with God because of all that they have to do with the church and then trying to address the needs of their family. There are times where we have to tell the hard truth to people. Just this last week, I sat with Pastor Richard, who is our equipped pastor. We sat with an individual, and this individual's choices have been detrimental and really difficult, and the consequences are, are, are pretty grave. And I've only been here eight months, so I don't necessarily know that I've earned the right to speak into your life. But I asked the question to this individual. I said, may I speak the last 10% into your life based on what you've just shared? And this person said yes. And I said, okay, let me, I'm going to tell you right now. What I'm about to share with you is going to be difficult to hear. Are you sure I can share the last 10%? And the individual invited me to share. And I did. Without apology, I shared the last 10%. And it was difficult. And by the grace of God, this individual received what I had to share and has already done a 180, has already done a lot of the things that I talked about doing to turn their, their life back to Jesus and to live in a way that honors him and glorifies him. It doesn't dismiss the, 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 the ramifications for their actions. There are things that they're going to have to manage while working toward growing in their relationship with Jesus. But more often than not, that is the exception and not the rule. The rule tends to be that when I speak the last 10%, people leave the church. People don't want to hear the last 10%. Well, what business is of yours, pastor? Why don't you get all your business figured out before you figure my business out for me? Why don't you pull the plank out of your own eye before you worry about my sawdust? And not only that, but then they go on the offensive and they start attacking. Well, I don't like that you're going bald. I don't like that you've got nothing but white up front. You skipped the gray period. You went straight to white. I don't know, something ridiculous. But it's lonely at the top. And I don't mean top as in position, okay? Okay. But as a senior pastor of a church that is growing leaps and bounds where we're seeing great things like 80 salvations in seven months and 21 baptisms and 12 dedications and 200, uh, you know, what, what do we have? 200 and something at vacation Bible school and I mean, all kinds of crazy stuff going on. It can be really lonely, not just at our church, but in the community because other churches and other people who are trying to do, what, 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 trying to do ministry end up competing with you somehow, end up comparing themselves to you and it just becomes really lonely. And not only that, but people in the church don't think they can be real with Stacy, my wife, and me because of our position. They don't want to share everything with us. They don't, they're going to keep us at a distance. We want a relationship, but we'll keep it at a handshake because I don't want to get too close to my pastor. It could be interesting. So I'm saying all that to say that there are times in ministry where being, a, and this is not just unique of me. This is going to be true of everyone on my staff. Not just my staff. This is true of every pastor I've ever met across the country. 
That is why we have worked really hard here at our church. One of our core values that you're going to learn about here in a couple months is that we will do life and ministry together. I will never live a life on my own or separate from the church and then have ministry. This is not a job for me. This is not a vocation. This is not a paycheck. This is an anointing and a calling that I am committed to. And if I'm called and committed to this, then the fruit of my life will be evident as we walk together in life. We're going to do this together. It's not always going to be easy. It's not always going to be comfortable. It's going to be difficult at times. I'm going to hear things I don't want to hear. You're going to hear things you don't want to hear. But we have to be committed to one another, to the kingdom of God, for what he's calling us to do. And it can be lonely at times. So I love, I love what Paul does here. He reminds Titus, you're not alone. Your pastors, your staff, and I'm not asking you to do this for me, okay? But there are people that you're going to walk down this hall today that serve this church. You've seen five of them today. Me, Shannon, Justin, Mark, and Alex. That's just a few of us that need to know that you love them, that you're there for them, that you're praying for them. Would you send them a note this week? Would you send them an email this week? Would you grab them in the hall and just tell them, I just want you to know I'm praying for you. I love you. I'm proud of you. You're doing a good work. Keep it up. You're not alone. That's what Paul does. He says, my true son in the faith that we share, may God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior give you what? Grace and peace. Keris kai erene. Grace and peace peace. Here's what we need to know, church. This captivated my heart and my mind this week, and that is this. Throughout Scripture, grace always precedes peace. Grace always comes before peace. Throughout the entire Word of God, those words are never inverted. It is never peace leads to grace. It is always grace and peace. And here's why this is significant. Here's what we need to understand about that. We live in a culture and a society that searches the world over desperately looking for peace. And they find peace in the lies of this world. They're trying to find peace in the cheap imitations. They try to find peace at the bottom of a bottle. They try to find peace at a bar stool in a bar. They try to find peace in an empty relationship. They try to find peace in, 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 in online romance. They try to find peace in how they spend their money. They try to find peace in the way they dress. They try to find peace in extramarital affairs. They try to find peace in, 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 in and even they, try, they come to the church looking for peace. They expect that I'm somehow going to be able to spoon feed them a dose of peace because in a world of confusion and brokenness that is not our home, in a world that we face trials and tribulations where Jesus says, you will have troubles of many kind in this world, but take heart, I've overcome the world. We are just in awe of God and want his peace. We are looking for peace. We want peace. We want peace. We want peace. But peace can never truly happen until we acknowledge and experience the grace of God. What is the grace of God? Grace, simply put, is God's riches at Christ's expense. In other words, that God loved you so much that he gave his one and only son to die in your place. Dead, buried three days, rose three on the third day, conquered death so that we could experience eternal life, that he would stand in our stead, take the place of our brokenness, to take the place of our sin, to take the place of our depravity, to take the place of our carnality. He stood in our place and he says, I will bear your burdens. I will bear your sins. Not that we won't sin or that our sin somehow goes away. Sometimes the consequences of our sin don't go away. But he forgives our sins. He forgives our debt, which is exactly what Paul says. I am an indentured servant. I am a bond servant or a slave. My debt has been forgiven, and I am choosing to serve God. I am choosing to make Jesus Christ my master. That is my position as a, as a bond servant, but my, my purpose is to be an apostle, to declare to everybody what Jesus has done for me. 
Now, we can either continue to go through life looking for cheap imitations for peace. We can search the world over for religious peace, for financial peace, for relational peace, for physical peace. It doesn't matter anything other than acknowledging and accepting the grace of God. You will never know in the fullness and the totality what peace truly is. Paul tells the church in Philippi, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. The Lord is near. Let your gentleness be evident to, to all. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition and with thanksgiving in your heart, present your requests to God, and the God of peace will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. In order to know the God of peace, we have to rejoice in the Lord. We have to know him, we have to accept him, and we have to live in him and walk in him. So my question this morning is, do you know the peace of God? If you don't know the peace of God, then it's likely you've never experienced the true grace of God. You've never accepted the fact that it was God's riches at Christ's expense for you on your behalf. And in order to know that peace, you've got to surrender your life to Jesus. And I'm talking full surrender. When you do, regardless of your circumstances, your relationships, your finances, your physical state. Regardless of the circumstances that surround you, you will know the peace of God because of the truth of his word and the promise that he gives us. Do you know the grace of God this morning? I pray you do. I pray you know the grace of God so that you can experience the, the peace that surpasses all understanding through God. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for an opportunity to dive into your word. Thank you that in you and through you, we can have both grace and peace. Father, I thank you that you've given me a platform by which I can share this message. Lord, there's no one more aware than me that I am nothing more than some conduit. And so I pray that as your word has gone out today, that it will be bound to the hearts of the men and women who are here, that they will receive the truth that comes from you and you alone. And that as your name is lifted up, that you will draw all people into yourself. And Father, I pray again that you would meet us where we're at but that you won't leave us here. Lead us that your word would be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Direct us as we surrender fully to you, I pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.